18 to 34 and the title of his message is The Shape of Weak and Wrong Faith. So let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 8 from verse 18. Matthew 8 verse 18 it says When Jesus saw the crowd around him he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake Then a teacher of the law came to him and said Teacher I will follow you wherever you go Jesus replied Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head Another disciple said to him Lord first let me go and bury my father but Jesus told him Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Without warning a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord save us, we're going to drown. He replied, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, If you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Thanks, Carl. Well, we're uh, continuing on this morning uh, from sort of, I guess, in a way, where we left off uh, last week. Uh, we're continuing on with this section of Matthew chapter 8 and 9, uh, which focuses on demonstrating to us, I suppose, the nature of biblical faith uh, and the identity and the authority of Jesus. If you were here last week, you might remember uh, that the, in the first three sections of chapter 8, we discovered that assurance of faith is not uh, of the essence of faith, that uh, they're, they're two distinct things, that uh, there's faith and there's also the assurance which comes through faith as well. Uh, we found that biblical faith recognises the authority of Jesus, uh, that Jesus speaks with the authority of God uh, and that biblical faith responds to Jesus as the Messiah, as the one who rescues us by taking upon himself uh, our sin. Well, in these uh, three sections of Matthew, uh, he gives us what I like to call an anti-picture. He gives us three anti-pictures of faith. My friend used to tell me, uh, that we need more antithetical preaching. It's a car, we need more antithetical preaching. And I would say, what's antithetical mean? Uh, but uh, what, what he was saying was, 
was that we not only need to say what something is often but also what something isn't. Uh, And that's what Matthew is doing. He's showing us what faith isn't like, what, what doesn't faith look like, what does weak faith, inadequate faith, what does that look like? And that's what Matthew is trying to do in these three sections. Last week he gave us that positive description and here he gives us the negative one. Uh, the first section is extremely brief. Uh, all we hear about is these two people who come to Jesus and they both express their commitment to Christ, to following Christ, and Jesus gives these two replies. Uh, in the first case, a teacher of the law comes to Jesus and he says, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replies, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This uh, teacher of the law seems to be pretty committed, uh, but Jesus' response forces him to consider, I think, whether he really is. Is he really as committed as he thinks he is? Uh, Jesus' answer is basically a, a really colourful way of saying, are you actually willing to go wherever I'm going? Jesus says there are places that I'm going which are more uh, austere, which are less comfortable, which are more barren than you can possibly imagine. Are you willing to go with me into all those places? Jesus is saying my way is hard. Are you willing to follow me on that way? It's easy, I think, uh, to misunderstand here what Jesus is actually saying. He's not saying that you need to uh, divest yourself of every kind of possession that you have in order to follow him. He's not saying that it's wrong to do things like own houses or uh, run businesses uh, or have a nice place to stay. Jesus had a place to stay uh, here just before. He's been staying in Peter's house with, with Peter's mother. Uh, evidently, uh, Jesus had a pretty nice robe to wear as well because when he was crucified, the, the soldiers uh, didn't want to tear it up. Uh, so that one of them could have it. The point is uh, not uh, poverty or austerity. The point is, are you willing to go where Jesus goes? Are you willing to go where Jesus wants you to go, where Jesus calls you to go? Next person uh, comes to Jesus and says, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus replies, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Jesus' reply uh, might seem pretty harsh. Uh, You know, this guy presumably is grieving. Uh, He wants to bury his father. Uh, But Jesus is making a claim about his authority over this man's life. Jesus is saying his claim over this man's life is absolute. Uh, It's not, again, it's it's not that burying family members is wrong. It's not that going to funerals is uh, some kind of hideous sin. But what Jesus is saying is if the decision comes down to grieving or following Jesus then the answer ought to be clear. To choose not to follow Jesus to do something else instead Jesus says is to choose death. Let the dead bury their own dead. You come and follow me. Again the idea is not that everything has to go. The idea is that wherever Jesus wants you to go, that's where you've got to go. Are you willing to do that? That's the question. I heard a, uh, I heard a great illustration this past week uh, of that uh, exact reality. Uh, I met with uh, a few ministers from 
Launceston met with Jim Morris, the head of the Australian Christian Lobby, and uh, it, it turns out that he'd been a Lieutenant General uh, in the Army before he started the ACL, uh, and he'd been the commander of the FAS. Uh, he'd been the commander, I think, of one brigade or something like that in the Northern Territory. He'd been, uh, he was the commander of Land, Land Warfare Division or something like that, and uh, he was cleared for promotion to Major General. He was looking at uh, becoming the Chief of Army when suddenly he felt that God was calling him to start up the Australian Christian Lobby to give up his job and to do something completely out of the square. The point is not that one thing is right and the other wrong. It's not that being in the army is a bad thing. The current chief of defence is a committed Christian. No, the point is when God calls you to go somewhere, are you willing to follow? When Jesus calls you to give up and to follow Christ, are you willing to go? I wonder what uh, your dreams and hopes for your life are. It might be uh, to grow your business. Uh, It might be uh, to complete further study. It might be to climb the, the job ladder. It might be to build a nice house. Uh, It might be to have a great family. It's not wrong to have uh, aspirations, but this is the test. If Jesus came to you tonight and said, if you want to follow me, you have to give that up, would you be able to do it? It's a mistake, I think, as well, to think that what Jesus is talking about is a one-off decision. He's not talking about... Uh, you know, one moment in your life where you sort of come to this uh, decision point where you suddenly realise I have to give up everything and follow Christ. He's not talking about that. He's talking about something that goes on for our entire life. Every moment of the day we're challenged, I think, to choose between two options. Are we going to pursue that or are we going to follow Christ? You know, it might be uh, in terms of watching a film. There might be some great film on at the moment uh, that everybody's talking about, everybody's watching it, but it's a terrible film. It's, you know, it glorifies violence, it you know, portrays uh, totally unhealthy relationships. It's not going to be useful or helpful in any way, shape or form. What are you going to do? It's a decision that you need to make. Are you going to follow Christ? Uh, it might be uh, a decision to help out with something. Someone might ask you, Look, uh, we really need someone to. We really need you to help out with us uh, for such and such. And you think to yourself, "Well, I can, I can do it, but I'd really rather not, to be honest. Uh, I, I'd just as soon sit at home and have a break." But then you think to yourself, "Well, actually, following Christ involves cost, doesn't it? it involves cost and sacrifice." The more we uh, face those kinds of decisions and the more often we come down on the side of giving up our own preferences and following Jesus, the more assurance we can have that we really are following Jesus. You might uh, find that when those challenges come that most often you choose uh, to follow, to follow Jesus. Well, if that's you, then be encouraged by the work of God's grace in your life. Be encouraged the miracle of obedience uh, in your life which he's working. So it's the first thing uh, which we see in that first section is uh, I guess the 
the, the shape of inauthentic faith which doesn't follow Jesus. The next uh, section then goes on to show us the shape of weak faith. In verses 23 to 27, uh, we have the account of Jesus calming the storm. Jesus and his disciples get into uh, a boat to cross the lake and as they're making their way across, uh, a great storm comes up and threatens to sink the boat. Uh, Jesus appears not to be particularly uh, worried about that. He's asleep uh, in the boat, but the disciples are absolutely petrified. And so they wake Jesus up, crying out to him, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. This boat's going to flood. I still remember one day uh, when I was living in Sydney, we decided to catch the ferry from Manly across the Circular Quay. Uh, We decided to catch it because it was a particularly rough day. There was a great storm uh, happening and uh, it looked like it would be fun to catch the ferry, so our family decided to jump on the ferry for no apparent reason uh, other than that. And so we got on the ferry. It turned out it was the last ferry that ran that day. Uh, the rest were cancelled because of the rough weather. And uh, my sister and I were quite young at the time, and I remember uh, sort of being a little bit worried that this boat was going to flood and capsize and that we were all going to drown, a bit like the disciples. And my father saying, don't worry, you, you don't need to worry about anything until the waves start crashing over the side of the, of the boat. At which point, almost on cue, a wave crashed over the side of the boat into the window where we were sitting. Uh, and we were, we were terrified. Well, you might forgive the disciples for being similarly terrified in a much smaller boat than a manly ferry. Uh, here they are, the, the, the wind is, is going... Uh, at great guns and and they're terrified. And you might think that their response actually showed their faith in Jesus. uh, They're in trouble, they realise that Jesus could help them and so they they call out to him, They, they wake him up, they ask him to help out in their situation. And yet Jesus says to them, you have little faith, why are you so afraid? The reason uh, for the disciples' fear was that they failed to understand who Jesus was. At this point uh, in Matthew, the disciples hadn't worked that out. They hadn't worked out who Jesus was. We know because Matthew's been telling us from the very beginning of the book. He's been telling us who Jesus is. We know because Jesus calms the storm and we know in the Old Testament that the only person who who has control over nature like that is God himself. We know who Jesus is, but Jesus' disciples failed to understand that and to apply that to the situation that they were in. The disciples were afraid because they didn't realise that Jesus was the Son of God. When Jesus calms the storm, they're amazed. At the end of that section it says, uh, they were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. In contrast, the centurion from only a few uh, parts ago, the the centurion was commended for his great faith. He realised who Jesus was. The leper who came to Jesus understood that Jesus had more than enough power to make him clean. In other words, Jesus' rebuke to the disciples is is simply another way of saying, why are you so afraid? Don't you realise who I am? Somewhat surprisingly, I think the Christian life, even for the true disciple, is often a battle 
for belief. It's a strange thing to say, isn't it? Something I've been thinking a lot about lately, that we're saved by faith and yet so much of the Christian life is a battle for belief. We believe and yet we struggle to believe. It's not a battle for belief in terms of particular outcomes. It's not a battle for belief uh, in terms of, uh, you know, a struggle to believe that God will give me this job that I'm praying for. That's not what we're talking about. It's not a, it's not a struggle for belief that, uh, you know, the, the family member that you're praying will be converted. You know, it's not a struggle to believe absolutely that that will happen. The Bible doesn't guarantee those things. It doesn't speak about those things with any certainty. Now it's a battle to believe God. That's what it is. It's a battle to believe who Jesus is. It's a battle to believe what Jesus is like. It's a battle to believe those things over against Satan's lies. Every temptation to sin, for example, is a battle for belief. It's It's a battle to believe actually that obedience to God is better than the sin. That's what we think. We think that the sin will make us the most happy, but that's not true. We struggle to believe God when he says, no, living my way is the best. It's a battle to believe that Jesus' death is sufficient for all our sins, even though we might feel that it isn't. We feel that that, that it's not enough, that, that there's a sin in our lives which is too great for the cross. It's a battle to believe God. It's a battle to believe that Jesus is a willing saviour. Remember the leper last week? He believed in the power of Jesus. He, he struggled to know whether or not Jesus was willing. Our temptation so often is, isn't it, to think that, that God is sadistic uh, and that God doesn't actually want to help us uh, and that he likes to make us suffer. And so when we ask for something, we think that it's more likely that it will be pain rather than joy. It's a battle to believe that God is a loving and compassionate God. I uh, decided to go for a walk late on Friday afternoon because my sermon was in disarray, to be quite honest, Uh, and I thought, well... I'm not getting any work done at my desk, so I'll go for a walk. And that usually is vaguely helpful. And I couldn't work out what the point of this section was. I couldn't work out what it was saying. And I began to panic that uh, this morning was going to be a horrible embarrassment. Maybe it has been, I'm not sure yet. (laughs) And I began to worry that I would let people down And the challenge I realised as I walked along was to believe God, wasn't it? Not to believe that I'd get my sermon written. No, but to believe that God was good. To believe that God was powerful. To believe that he wasn't out to get me. To believe that he loved me in Christ. To believe that he loved the church. And that whatever happened, total flop or not, whatever happened, it would be for the good of those who loved him and have been called according to his purpose.
You see, so often it's a struggle to believe what we know, isn't it? To hold on to it, to accept it and to take God at his word. In that way, true truth, biblical truth, truth about Christ, right understanding of Jesus drives out fear. What the disciples needed to know was more about who Jesus was and what he was like. It wasn't something that they needed to find in themselves, but something they needed to find in meditating and reflecting on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Well, we've seen that uh, inauthentic faith, uh, we've seen the shape of inauthentic faith which doesn't follow Jesus and we've seen the shape of weak faith which fails to apply biblical truth to our situation. And lastly, Matthew uh, portrays for us the nature or the shape of unbelief. This uh, last episode takes place on the other side of the lake in a place called the region of the Gadarenes and these two demon-possessed men come to Jesus and they say three extraordinary things. Firstly, they say, what do you want with us, Son of God? And then, have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? And finally, they say, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. In those three uh, short statements, the demons demonstrate an incredible grasp of Jesus' identity. Uh, They recognise that Jesus is the Son of God. So they realise that he is God's Messiah and that he is God himself. Uh, They recognise the reality of the coming day of judgement. They talk about Jesus, they ask Jesus whether he's come to torture them before the appointed time, before the the day of judgement. And finally they believe in Jesus' power over them. Uh, They don't say, ha ha, try and drive us into the pigs if you dare and see what happens. No, they say, well, if you're going to drive us out, send us into the pigs. They just assume that that what Jesus desires, what Jesus wants, what Jesus commands will happen. In other words, the demons have no trouble understanding and believing, if you like, who Jesus is. Uh, Somewhat staggeringly, actually, the demons understand more about the identity of Jesus than the disciples did, his own disciples in the boat. And Matthew uses uh, this understanding of the demons, I think, uh, to, to throw into greater light what happens next, what happens in the response of the local people. Uh, and what happens in the, response, uh, in the response of the local people tells us then something about the nature of faith. Uh, after all these things have taken place uh, and the demons have been sent into the herd of pigs and Uh, the pigs have been destroyed, Uh, the account of what happened, the account of what Jesus did, is relayed by the pig farmers to the local town. So look at verse 33. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Presumably, the all this that uh, Matthew is talking about was the whole episode between Jesus and and the demons. So it included uh, the demons calling Jesus the Son of God, uh, the demons, you know, 
fear of uh, the judgment of, of Christ, uh, the demons' understanding of Jesus' power over them, as well as the fact that uh, these demon-possessed men were healed. So they hear this great report and then in verse 34, how does the town react? Well, verse 34 says, Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus and when they saw him, they bowed down to him and pleaded with him to save them from their sins and the coming wrath. Now it doesn't say that, does it? It says, and when they saw him, what did they do? They pleaded with him to leave their region. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the situation? There's a public meeting in the town and the pig farmers come and they say, you'll never believe what just happened. Do you remember those crazy guys who lived among the tombs that were possessed by those demons? Well, Jesus, this guy Jesus came and they said, what do you want with us, the Son of God? They called him the Son of God and then they were afraid of what he was going to do to them. He drove them into the pigs and then the pigs died and these two demon-possessed men, they're better, they're healthy. Can you believe it? Let's get rid of him. The testimony to uh, Jesus' identity in this miracle is met not by faith but by rank unbelief. The understanding and the response of the villagers remind us, I think, of an important lesson about the nature of faith. It reminds us that biblical faith is more than just great knowledge about Jesus. It also involves great commitment The demons understood perfectly who Jesus was. The people in the village had the opportunity to understand that as well. They heard it as well. But their response was to get rid of Jesus. James uh, picks up on a very similar theme in his letter uh, when he writes, You believe there is one God? Good, even the demons believe that. And shudder. It's not great truth. It's not great knowing of truth but it's hearing and knowing and responding and committing to following Jesus that counts. That's a timely reminder I think for many of us, isn't it? It's a timely reminder for many of us who hear great truth week in and week out. We hear great truth, we know great truth but it's more than that. It's not knowing that alone which saves us. We need to know that. We need to know who Jesus is. Matthew's been showing us that. But we need more than that. We need to hear who Jesus is. We need to hear his call to be absolutely committed to him and we need to respond to that in obedience and faith. You might be totally unwilling to trust and to follow Jesus. You might have faith in the sense that you believe everything there is to know about who Jesus is. You might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You might have no trouble believing that. You might even defend that to all the atheists that you come across. You might have no trouble believing that Jesus' death is sufficient to atone for your sins. You might have no trouble believing that. You may never become an atheist, but understand this. Unless 
you are committed to following Jesus as well as believing in him, whatever faith you have, it's not biblical faith because biblical faith not only believes and understands who Jesus is, it's committed to going wherever he goes. Alternatively, you might be immensely conflicted. You might uh, find that part of you wants to follow Jesus and yet you also find that it's a real struggle to give things up. It's a real struggle when you face those challenges to choose between Christ or something else. You find it's difficult. What's the remedy if you struggle to follow Jesus wherever he goes? Well, the best remedy is not to ignore that and to pretend it isn't happening. The best remedy is to realise and to acknowledge Jesus' absolute claim over your life and to pray and to confess your sin. The best place is to start with humility at the foot of the cross, to say, Father, I'm struggling to follow Jesus. I know, I, I know what the demands are but my heart is tied so much to these other things. I'm so afraid of what it's going to cost me. Please forgive me and help me to give these things up and follow Jesus. These three anti-pictures help us to understand more clearly the nature of biblical faith. In the first section there were those people who were willing to follow Jesus but who weren't willing to follow all the way. In the second there were the disciples who were willing to follow Jesus but who didn't apply their knowledge of Jesus, their understanding of Jesus to their situation and that drove them to, to great fear. And in this third section there were the villagers who had the testimony, who had the knowledge to understand exactly who Jesus is but who were unwilling to follow him. Together these three pictures remind us again of that great message that Matthew has been driving home to us again and again and again. The great elements of biblical faith are trust and commitment to following Jesus. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you that you show us who Jesus is. Lord, thank you that men like Matthew wrote down an account of all that Jesus said and did so that we might know who he is so that we might know that he is your great and glorious son who uh, took up our sin and died uh, for our sin on the cross. Father, we pray that you would strengthen our faith. Lord, help us not to be like the disciples who were so afraid because they failed to apply the truth of Christ uh, to their lives. Lord, they knew it, but they struggled to deal with their fear because they were battling with unbelief. Lord, please help us to believe you 
Lord, we believe, help us overcome our unbelief. And Lord, thank you so much that even though their faith was small, that Jesus heard their cry and calmed the storm. Help us to trust that you hear our cries to you, even though our faith is weak and shallow sometimes and our understanding is limited. Help us to rest, not in what we know, but in who Jesus is. And Lord, for those of us who know and who understand but who are unwilling to commit to following Jesus, Lord, we ask that you would enable them to repent and to choose life rather than death. Lord, help them to grasp what it is that they're giving up by rejecting Jesus. Father, we pray that you would work in their hearts because we know that apart from your grace and your kindness and the work of the Holy Spirit, that it's impossible to know and to love Jesus and to follow him. Father, we commit all these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.